Well, let me tell you where you can meet me this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 15. Um, Psalm 15 is where we're going to be. If, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, then Psalms are pretty easy. Usually, if you just kind of open right to the middle of the Bible, you're in Psalms, and then you can navigate over to chapter 15. Um, for the last few weeks, the next few weeks, uh, you guys as a church have been going through the Psalms. I'm actually here next week as well, which is awesome. I didn't know snow cones were on the menu, so I feel like I picked the best possible week of the year to teach, uh, so I can't wait for uh, sugary ice <laughs> next week. Um, I think we're going to be in Psalm 43 next week if you want to be looking at that this week to prepare, but we're in Psalm 15 um, this morning. Let's read it together, and, and then we'll dive into it. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Now, the heart of Psalm 15, the very core, is this question. Who gets to live with God? Who's welcome in God's presence? What kind of person gets welcome into fellowship, into relationship with God? Who, who is that person? Now, this is actually one of the, the major plot lines of the Bible, fellowship with God, how to be welcomed into his presence. It's one of the, the main themes that drives the narrative forward in Scripture. Right in the very beginning of Scripture in, in Genesis, God, uh, the, the Bible really opens up, the narrative opens up with God creating a man and a woman and placing them in a garden, a place where they will live in perfect fellowship with him, where his presence will be with them in, in full relationship, and the garden is meant to be this place of fellowship with God where God dwells with them. But then if you know the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they rebel against God. They turn against God. They choose their own way. And we actually get this, this saying where they, they hide from the presence of God. They actually turn away to, to move away from fellowship with God. And as a result, they're banished from the garden. They're sent east of Eden, away from God's presence. And so then if you're just reading the Bible maybe for the first time and you, you get to that part in the narrative, you should just be left with this question of like, what's God going to do? Like, what's next? Like, he, he had this plan. He had this creation. And, and it kind of went wrong. Like, what, what's next? What will he do? Will he abandon them? Will he give up on his people forever? Or will he make a way for them to be entered back into his presence, back into fellowship with him? Now, beyond Scripture, this question of fellowship with God, of who's welcomed into his presence, this is actually one of the primary questions that just humans deal with that we, we have. Some of you may not agree with that. You may think that, like, it's not really true. I don't, I don't constantly kind of wake up going like, you know, I wonder who gets to dwell in the presence of God. What is the nature of human and divine connection? Like, especially if you're not a religious person or if you don't consider yourself a church person. Maybe you're, you're visiting and you're not used to being a part of church communities or you're not actively seeking fellowship with God. You're like, that's, that's not really something I care about that much. We have a student uh, who goes to our church, and he's 16 years old, and he's, he's pretty openly agnostic. And we were doing a small group one, uh, recently, and we were talking about the nature of God and relationship with God and fellowship with him. And, and he just stopped, and he said, like, do you guys think that me and my high school friends sit around and talk about this stuff all the time? Because we don't. 
And I was like, no, 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 I, I know you don't. You're 16. I remember being 16. I didn't sit around and talk about the nature of fellowship in the presence of God. That's, that wasn't the main topic of conversation among 16-year-old boys. And, uh, and so we're like, no, we get it. That's why you're here, to, so we can talk about these things, right? And so, so maybe, you're, maybe you're like that. Maybe you're like, it's not really something that I don't think I think about that much. And yet, I imagine for you, and most people would say that there's kind of a nagging feeling like there's more to this world. Like there's something going on. Like say, like even if you would just flat out say you're an atheist. So you don't believe in God. The, the physical world is all we have. All we have is what we can see, touch, feel that we're in. There's no, there's no real meaning. There's no real purpose in the world, in the universe. It's just kind of we're all here by random chance. Like even if that's you, you probably even believe that, and yet it doesn't fully line up with your experience. Like, you can't quit the feeling that there's meaning, that there's purpose. Like, you feel it when you, when you engage in great art, or if you love music, when you hear a great piece of music. When you're out in beauty and in nature, you sense something bigger than yourself. Maybe it's through relationships. Maybe it's when you make love. Maybe it's when you have a good meal. You can sense something happening. That's bigger than just the physical world. C.S. Lewis wrote a little essay on this called The Weight of Glory, where he kind of addresses this feeling that many people have, and he described it like this. He says, we don't merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Right, like we long for transcendence. Isn't this why people raise their hands when they go to concerts at Red Rocks? It's like they're having a spiritual experience. Or when you hear people describe what they like to do in Colorado, like maybe they describe like, uh, you know, they like to do yoga or they like to go mountain biking or hiking or climbing. Like when people describe these things, they don't just describe them as kind of fun or good for physical exercise. They describe them as like, they're, they're like meaningful, spiritual, connective relationships to these things. Right? If you, if you watch, uh, if any of you watch like the NBA Finals, um, like I think there's a game on tomorrow night and it's in Golden State. When Steph Curry hits a three, people like have like a euphoric experience in the stadium. They're like, oh my gosh, it's like we just witnessed like the divine come to us, right? There's this longing for transcendence. When a, when a child is born, if you've been able to witness and be in the room when a child is born and you hold them for the first time and they, they, they reach out and they grab your hand. It's like something wells up in you that's so deep, that's so beautiful, it's so powerful, you actually probably can't even explain what's going on in you. It's just natural to the human experience. We long to not just enjoy the creation, we, we long to stand in the glorious presence of the creator who made it all and to know him, which leaves us all asking the same question as the psalmist here in verse 1. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who gets to live with God? Who gets to know the creator? Who gets to be welcomed into his presence? Now, the author has purposely chosen to use the word sojourn here. What's a sojourner? A sojourner is an outsider. A sojourner is a foreigner. They're someone who's not born with the natural rights of a place. Rather, they're coming from the outside to visit a place. They're, they're foreign. That's what he's saying is the natural place of each person is not in God's presence. If you have to sojourn, if you have to come from the outside to be in God's presence, it means you're not naturally born in it. It means you don't naturally get to enjoy it. 
And that, that's really the feeling behind, behind our longings, behind why we desire transcendence, behind why we desire to seek meaning, but sometimes can't quite feel like we can grasp it. It's because it's not natural to us. It's foreign to us. We are outsiders. So C.S. Lewis will continue with that quote in The Weight of Glory, and he says, at present, we're on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. And so when it comes to dwelling in the presence of God, we're actually on the outside. Now, why is that? Why is that the case? Well, we're reading Psalm 15 this morning, but Psalm 15 is meant to be taken um, as a couplet with Psalm 14. So if we actually go just right back to the Psalm previous to it in Psalm 14, we get the reason why right at the very beginning, verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Now, why is the Lord looking down from heaven? Heaven is the place where God's presence lives. He's looking down because heaven and earth are disconnected. There's a schism that's been created. They're not one. God doesn't dwell with man on earth. And so he looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. This is giving us like the sobering reality of what it means to be human, that, that the default human posture is actually not to acknowledge God as creator. It's not to submit to him as Lord. It's not to draw near to him in fellowship. In fact, we turn the opposite way. We say to God what Kendrick Lamar recently said in his new record, the last song, and the, the song Mirror. He says this to his fan base, his last words in the record, maybe his last words he'll ever write. He says, sorry I didn't save the world, my friend. I was too busy building mine again. I choose me. I'm sorry. And then he just says over again, I choose me. I'm sorry. And he was saying that to his fans, like, hey, at the end of the day, when it comes between you guys and it comes between what I need, I choose me. That's kind of what we say to God. Hey, God, like, I, I know what you've invited me into. I, I know that you, you've woven, like, a certain way this world should operate, that you are king, that you are lord of the universe. But at the end of the day, like, I'm over here building me. So I choose me. And yet, how does God respond? Again, we're left with this question. What will God do? What will God do with the people he created turning against him and choosing their own way? How will, how will he respond? He breaks into our reality. He comes after us. He does not let us go. He comes after us. Look at the end of Psalm 14, last verse, verse 7. It's the last verse you get right before you get into Psalm 15. The psalmist writes, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. David is anticipating a day an expectation. He says, when the Lord, not if the Lord, when the Lord will restore the fortunes of, of his people. He anticipates a day where God will do something to bring his people back into his presence, back into fellowship with him. And David doesn't know at this time what we know now. That this is exactly what God does through the person of Jesus. Salvation is granted to us. It comes out of Zion. He sends his son so that God will do something on our behalf to give us a way back into fellowship with God. And so we read this in Ephesians 2. I think I'm going to have this slide up here. Here we go. The Apostle Paul writes this regarding what Jesus has done on our behalf. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You're sojourners. You're outsiders. You don't enjoy the benefits of fellowship with God and relationship with God. Remember that you have no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the good news, the good news of Jesus. It's not that we realized our wrong, cleaned ourselves up, we kind of figured it out, like we weren't really living the way we were supposed to, so we put it all together, presented ourselves as holy and clean, presentable to God, and he accepted us. In fact, I talk to people all the time, that's, that's kind of their view of Christianity. They're like, maybe sometimes they'll say like, I realize I need more religion in my life, or I kind of need to get back into church, but there's just some things right now that aren't going so well. You know, I've kind of have like, I've got to figure out this marriage that's falling apart, or I've got this broken relationship with my kids, or, you know, I've really got some, hab- some bad habits and some habitual sin in my life I can't kick. And I've I got to focus on those things, and I'll get those things in order, and, and maybe then I'll come back to church, and I'll, I'll come back to following God. And, and sometimes that's the view that people have. No, this is the opposite. Christ came to us in our sin, in our weakness, in our separation from God. At the, at the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not waiting for us to become perfect followers, but coming to us in our sin. That's the basis. That's the way. That's the foundation by which sojourners, we, enter God's presence. God initiates with us. So then Psalm 15 picks up and asks the question, for those of us who've been welcomed back into the presence of God, that God has made a way for us to worship him, not on our own merits, but on the basis of what he has done, How then do we approach God in worship? What does he expect? What does he ask of his people who have come to dwell in his presence, who have come to worship him? What are the marks of a true worshiper? And here's the overarching theme. And it might surprise you. You might have an idea of like, what's the posture of worship God would expect of us? You might have some ideas of what that looks like. So this might surprise you because the overarching theme of Psalm 15 is it has everything to do with how we relate to other people in our social lives. The big idea of Psalm 15 is that how we live with others, how we flesh out our horizontal relationships is actually integral to our relationship with God. So we get that question in verse 1. Who, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Here's the answer, verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That's a true worshiper, someone who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Now, we got to be careful here because when you read it, it, it sort of feels like it translates to those who have good morals and are a good Christian. Like this was actually something um, when, I, when I was in high school, I did not have like hardly any at all Christian friends. There weren't very many Christians in the town I grew up in um, on the north side of Chicago, and very few friends of mine um, that I went to school with were church people or anything like that. And so sometimes, like, people would say to, like, they'd describe me, and they'd say, like, you know, Michael, he's a, he's a good Christian. He's a good Christian. What do they mean by that? I mean, he doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't sleep around. He tries not to cuss that much. Like, he's just, he's a good Christian. That's kind of how they... Describe it. And sometimes you, you kind of read this, you walks blamelessly and does what is right, you think like, it's just a good, upstanding, moral person, a religious person. But the phrase here, does what is right, literally translates to does righteousness. Righteousness in the Old Testament is synonymous and oftentimes used interchangeably with the word justice. 
It means living justly. And living justly is doing righteousness, is doing what's right on behalf of another person who's been wronged, who's vulnerable, who's hurting. That's what does righteousness or does what is right means here. Now, this is woven into the history of the people of God. This is actually one of the main defining characteristics of how God created his people to be. And so when we first read about back in Genesis, how God has called his people to be, this is in Genesis 18, 19. This is what he says on behalf of Abram, the founder of the Jewish faith. He says, for I have chosen him. Again, God comes to us. He initiates with us. I've chosen him. How? Why? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is what God called Israel to be. He, He took all of the nations of the earth and he called one nation, one family out of those nations, and he, and he called them to live in a way that would, would reflect God's goodness, that his love, his justice, and his righteousness in the world. And so because they were called to be this way, the quality of their worship, the quality of the way that they approached God was judged by their just treatment of others. So we'll actually see this where Israel's track record and their history of doing this is pretty poor. In fact, it's like this very same chapter that Abram like traffics his wife to save his own butt. So it's like bad start. And then God will send the prophets and the prophets like over and over again, the critique that they bring to the people of Israel, to the people of God, is that they violate the commandments of God as they relate to justice and righteousness, that oftentimes they're pretty good when it comes to following the religious ordinances. They keep the festivals, they keep the dietary laws, they they keep the temple, you know, in a way that it should be ceremonially. And and they do all these things, so they kind of outwardly look like they have a posture of worship, but inside they're just rotten when it comes to their social relationships. They just completely ignore them. And so right at the beginning of Isaiah, one of the most famous prophets, we get this pretty scathing review and critique of the people of Israel. He says, God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. It's like pretty tough reviews. It's like a bad Yelp review, right? They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Here's the key. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's like their prayers, their sacrifices, the work that they put in in the temple. He's saying like, hey, I don't don't want any of those things if you're going to neglect what really matters to me. How you take care of those who are hurting, who are vulnerable, who are in need in your community. And so he rejects their worship because underneath it is just unjust living. Now, this is actually the main critique that Jesus will bring to the religion of his day as well. 
Um, and so we can read about many places in the Gospels that recount the life and the teaching of Jesus where he goes to critique the religious leaders of his day, and he essentially brings this same critique. And so just one place is in Matthew 23, and really the whole chapter of Matthew 23 outlines a lot of um, the, the critique that Jesus had of, of the religious leaders. But I'll just point out one verse to you. This is in Matthew 23, 23, very similar to Isaiah. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Now that little phrase there speaks truth in his heart. That's important. Justice is more than lip service. To speak truth in your heart is different than to speak truth with just your mouth. You can say something with your mouth and it cannot be true in your heart. It cannot be actually true who you are and what you're about. And so justice is more than just like a social media post. It's more than just a political opinion. It's more than a bumper sticker or a sign in your front yard. You actually have to get involved in the lives of real people. You have to do something. You have to do something on behalf of another person. You have to know people. You have to get involved in their lives. You have to give up your time, give up your life. You can't just speak it and expect it to happen. So the rest of Psalm 15 and the rest of our time this morning, we're just going to look at examples of what this looks like. Psalm 15 is going to give us seven examples of social living that measures the quality of a community that worships. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not like a huge fan of like long lists in sermons. Like I've got 14 points for you and I expect you all to remember them and to follow them perfectly this week. Like generally not, like I don't personally grow that much with that kind of preaching. Um, and so here's maybe just, if that's you, here, here's how you can take these seven things this morning. Don't read them as a laundry list of things you have to do this week. Maybe just imagine that or just expect that one or two of them will stick out. Like one or two of them will resonate with you or, or will stick out to you and will kind of maybe prick a piece of your heart that you could have further self-examination on, that you could have a conversation with a, a friend, a community group, a spouse, that you could dive deeper on in self-reflection. I, I think that's kind of maybe the best way to take these. Um, so we actually are going to get the first three of these examples right here in verse 3. So look at verse 3 with me. We get three negatives. Who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So these first three are don't slander, don't do evil, and doesn't take up a reproach. These are three descriptions of, a, of someone who comes to worship before God. So the, the overarching theme of these and the question is, how do you relate to your neighbors? Do you seek the good of your neighborhood? Do you seek the good of your neighbors? Do you seek the good of those that you work with, that those you interact with on a daily, weekly basis? Or do you kind of hold certain people in contempt? Do you have ill feelings or ill actions towards anybody? So what each of these three things do is they push against the health of a neighborhood. So let's just focus in on one. Let's focus in on slander here. Slander is gossip, bad-mouthing or cutting down another person in order to try to ruin their reputation before other people. Slander tears apart the fabric of a relational community. 
It, it, it rips apart true community and real relationships. Like here, an example is um, my wife and I, we just moved to a new neighborhood and we were moved, as we were pondering, like, should we move into this neighborhood? It was a neighborhood in Denver that we weren't really familiar with. And so we were like, you know, we don't know much about it. Like, how can we learn about it if this is a good place that we should live? And my mother-in-law suggested that we go read uh, what people were saying about the neighborhood on the Nextdoor app or nextdoor.com. And I was like, if all we ever knew about a neighborhood was what people wrote on Nextdoor, nobody would ever want to live there. It's like judge, 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 complain, 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 judge. It's like that person's yard, that person's weeds, that person's dog, that person's trash cans, that person's fire pit smoking at night. It's like, it's like the worst description of a neighborhood you could possibly get. Right? Like that's the effect of slander. It does, it does not uphold, it does not prop up, it does not make your neighborhood seem like a place people want to live. Now, Slander has actually become one of the most common ways in our public life in this day and age that people communicate to one another. It's one of the most common ways of relating to each other in the public sphere. Obviously, this happens mostly online and in social media. Our political discourse is a huge part of this. In fact, many people would say slander is a form of justice. It's a way to bring justice. You can knock down somebody. You can ruin their name. You can cancel them. That's a way to bring justice. And really what it is, is it's slander. In fact, it's become so common in our culture, it's, you can actually see it slipping into the church. You can see Christians, this temptation for even Christians, to learn from the culture that this is how we should speak of one another in public and in private. Those who dwell with God, true worshipers, shall not slander with their tongue. We don't get to. We don't get to talk about each other like this in our communities, in the churches here in our city, in the church across our country and in the globe, we don't get to use slander as a way of speaking because that's not the quality of our worship. In fact, it poisons our communities and it poisons our worship. And so those who want to dwell with God shall not slander with the tongue. So that's our first three. Let's look at number four. This is at the beginning of verse four in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So this is about who and what we find honorable and who and what we find disgraceful. So the question is like, where do you go to look for matters of ethics of what's right and what's wrong? Now, we're kind of living in a moment culturally where there is a heightened awareness towards matters of justice. There's a lot more talk about it. There's a lot more people aware of matters of justice. There's a lot more people who would say that they are more attuned to fighting for justice in our day and age, for matters of who's righteous and who's unrighteous, of matters of right and wrong. And, and yet, one observation that I'd make, and maybe you agree with me, is that um, I'm not really sure what the guiding principle is behind where people look to what's right and wrong. What's the source? What's the objective foundation that people, by which people stand and say something is unjust, something is right or wrong? I, like it it kind of seems to me that it's, it's conventional wisdom. It's maybe who has the loudest voice, where are the masses going. It's just what, what kind of seems right to us. No, honors those who fear the Lord means that we have an objective source. 
We have a foundation. It's the guidance of God given to us in his word that shows us what is just and unjust, what is righteous and unrighteous. What are we called to in terms of right and wrong? So that's what that means. Who do we find honorable and disgraceful? Where do we look for matters of ethics? God's revealed this to us in his word and given us to this as a guiding source. All right, number five, the second part of verse four. It says, those who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Swears to his own hurt means you honor your promises and your commitments. So this is just the question of, are you a person of your word? Do you stick to your word even when it's costly to you, even when it hurts? Now, we live in a place, and this is kind of just true to the culture of Colorado, and especially in the Denver area, where commitment is kind of held loosely. Like, commitment is kind of like, it's, I'll, I'll agree to it until something better comes up. Like, Coloradans are pretty slow to commit to something because they don't want to miss out on the potential of something better, right? So I was going to show up, but it ended up being an awesome powder day. They'll understand, Right, like sometimes we uh, kind of use the language of self-care. Like, man, I, j- I just feel myself being overextended right now. I just feel like I'm really close to burnout or it, I wouldn't have committed to that at the time if, if I knew I was gonna be in this current season of life, right? Or I, I'm just too tired from a hard week. They'll, they'll get it, they'll understand. Sometimes this is really little things, very small commitments. I'm not talking about like the largest thing in the world. It's very small things, but what is the measure when you add up all of the small things in a culture like this. Like, I, I'm saying this for myself. Like, there was just a few years ago um, where, you know, we had made dinner plans with friends, and it had taken a really long time to get the, like, to figure out a time we could both have dinner. You ever, like, have that with someone? You're like, let's get together. Great. How's your week? Like, terrible. Next week? Not good for me. How about, and then, like, you're like, all right, a year and a half from now, let's have dinner. And that's kind of what had happened. And so we were getting close to that date. And my team ended up being in the World Series, and I didn't know it was going to be on that same date. And I was like, hey, the Cubs are only in the World Series once every like 60 to 100 years. Do we have to go to dinner? And my wife looked at me and she said, um, actually, um, the, the true worshipers are those who swear to his own hurt and does not change. She just pulled that out on me. No, not really. She just said, we're going to dinner. <laughs> Fair. We all know that feeling of, man, I wish I hadn't said yes to this. I'd really rather not show up. It's really no big deal if I cancel. They'll understand. But let's just ask, what kind of world does this create? What kind of culture that does this create? What are we implicitly communicating when we choose to live our lives like this? In fact, I, I, I believe and I think I've observed that non-commitment in our day and age is, is contributing to greater isolation and greater loneliness. Consistently on polls, the Denver area checks as one of the loneliest places in the country. And what people usually mean by that is, if I really need something, I don't have anybody who'll show up for me. And so people around here are just longing for a community that says that their yes will be yes, that swears to their own hurt, that are committed to one another, that are deeply rooted in this place. I think this is one of the greatest ways that your worship as a church can shine brightly, that your mission can go forward is just by being people who show up when they say they're going to show up. And sometimes it hurts. But that's what kind of community we're called to be. 
All right, lastly, number six and number seven kind of go hand in hand, and this is in verse five. Number six is the first half of verse five. Who does not put out his money at interest. The principle here is of not taking advantage of someone who's in need. Those who need to take loans are generally people with less. And those who give out loans are generally people with more. So there's kind of a wealth inequality principle going on here that's tied to generosity. It says that when someone's in need and you find yourself as someone who has, that you're giving on behalf of the other person in order to help them, in order to bring them up. You're not giving out of some personal gain. You're not trying to take advantage of them. You're not trying to get something from them, some personal return. Likewise, our our last example here, the second part of verse 5, also has to do with how money and generosity tie into our lives. Read the second part of verse 5. So verse 5 says, Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Which just means you can't be bought. That your character won't compromise because of money. Now, if we worship God, if we believe that we've been welcomed into the glorious presence of our creator, that he's met all of our longings in the person of Jesus, then then our worship and our integrity are far more valuable than any monetary gain, than any material possession that we could possibly have. That stuff, we've got to hold that stuff up as far more valuable, far more worthy and, and worthwhile in our lives than just money. So then David will close the psalm with this last little stanza. He who does these things shall never be moved. What he's saying here is not only does living in this way that the psalm is outlining, not only does it lead to a more full and rich fellowship with God, greater quality of worship toward him, but there's actually an amazing personal benefit from this. Like, you just benefit as a person. You're unchanged by life circumstances. That's true freedom, by the way. When life can throw whatever it wants at you, and you are unmoved and unchanged. In fact, this is how you lean into who God is. God is unmoved. God is unchanged. God is the same, constant, now, today, forever. And and so you get to reflect that same character of God. And so imagine things go wrong at work. You're not tempted to profit at another person's expense. You're not tempted to take advantage of a coworker or to slander your boss. Imagine you, you have something stolen from you. You're robbed. You don't feel the temptation to steal back. How about when you're wronged, when you're slighted? You're not tempted to retaliate. When your finances get tough, you fall on hard times, you don't feel like you have to lie on your taxes to try to get by. When you're slandered, when you find yourself on the other side of gossip, of people trying to tear apart your name, whether at work or in your family or in relationships or sometimes even in your church, you're not tempted to slander back. You just speak positively and kindly and lovingly about other people to help heal and reform an anxious situation. That's true freedom. You shall never be moved. And so when it comes to the quality of our worship, when it comes to approaching God and being in his presence, it doesn't just come down to our religious commitment. Like it doesn't just come down to saying the right things or, or trying to give off this appearance that we have it all together of holiness. It has everything to do with how we relate to one another in the social fabric of our communities. 
Now, my, my hope really, and what I've been praying for as I've approached this psalm and, and prepping to teach it, my hope is just that for, for each of you, and honestly for myself, that this would just bring some self-examination. This would just provide a launching point and opportunity for you to just kind of audit a little bit of your life and uh, of how you live with others, and just to ask some honest questions to yourself. And, and, and you can just ask, whether it's personally or in your community, like, is God pleased with our worship? Is our community, is it, is it a place that's marked by justice and righteous living among one another, among our neighborhoods, and just are we bringing that to society at large? Or is there a disconnect? Is there a disconnect between who you are, who you say you are, maybe when you're at church or in your faith community, and who you are in other areas of your life? And, and, and if you find yourself in that assessment, in that examination, if you find yourself, like, struggling or admitting failure, that's when you remember we're welcomed into fellowship with God based on the grace and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus given to us in the gospel, not on our own merit. And all he asks is that we bring to him our confession and our repentance so that he can do what he loves to do more than anything, which is lavish his loving kindness and acceptance and grace on us. And so the invitation for you this morning is to just come and confess, bring these things to him, and receive mercy from him. We are um, going to move into a time of response and of worship um, and take of the Lord's Supper. And this is actually the heart behind why every week when we gather together as the church, we participate in the Lord's table. Because communion is a reminder that God has created a way for us to be in his presence. It's through the death of Jesus. It's through his body broken and his blood poured out. That is the basis by which we can enter into fellowship and union with God. His death cleanses us of unrighteous living, it reconciles us to God, and it, and it allows us to enjoy all the benefits of the person of Jesus. So we're going to invite you now during this next set of worship to come to the table, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to enjoy fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus at the table. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that you've invited us to dwell with you through the person of Jesus that you've made a way for us. And God, I ask right now that um, as we sing to you, that the quality of our worship wouldn't just be that we go through the motions. It wouldn't just be that we, that we sing. It wouldn't just be that we say the right words, but it would have everything to do with how we consider our community and how do we consider others. And so God, I just ask, make us a just people. Make us a holy and a righteous people. Let let our worship have power in this community because it's backed up by living in righteous ways, the ways that you've called us to. And if we bring any failure in that area, we just confess it honestly now and receive from you your mercy. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.